So with Mark, I bring you greetings. Good morning. I'm Joel, and I welcome you to Heart City Church. Any of you joining us online? We are in Luke chapter 21, where Jesus gives his most formidable, his heaviest speech to date. Uh, We covered the first half of it last week, so we're going to look at the rest of it today. But I want to read the whole speech again so that we'll take the whole thing in. Before I do, I want to ask you this. If you could see into the future and you knew that there was an unprecedented catastrophe coming, if you could see in the future and you saw that and people you loved were soon to face this inevitable and inescapable crisis, what would you say to prepare them for it? What would you say to prepare them for it? On May 13th, 1940, this was the task of Winston Churchill the brand new Prime Minister of England. Hitler and the Nazis were blitzkrieging through their southern neighbor France, and Churchill knew that the Axis powers would soon be training their guns north at England. The most horrific war to date in human history was just beginning, and this brand new leader stood before Parliament, and here is what he said to prepare them. He said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, and with all our might, and with all the strength that God can give us. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory, victory at all cost, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. But I take up my task with buoyancy and with hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. He saw this catastrophe coming. Did you see what Churchill did to prepare his people? He prepared them by being real, real about how awful it's going to be. He prepared them by saying, you guys need God's strength. We need God's strength here. And he also prepared them by speaking of hope, buoyancy and hope. I think he might have learned something from Jesus, even though he wasn't a believer, I don't believe. Listen to Jesus. I want you to listen to him be real about the great distress which is to come. Hear Jesus' call to pray for strength from God and also listen to Jesus' call to hope to straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Listen to Jesus' speech because unlike mortal men, his promise is sure. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, Jesus, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, 
do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the earth, the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Father, we need your help right now so that we might stay awake. Our time is short. Our need is great. Will you do something momentous in the mere moments we have? For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Luke 21 is called the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus' Judgment Day sermon to his disciples. It's also found in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. It begins with the disciples talking about the beauty of the massive temple and then Jesus exploding their minds by promising that this temple is going to be leveled 
along with the entire city of Jerusalem. Many will die. This is why I printed our bulletins, verses 20 to 24, which we covered last week. Jesus is describing what would take place about 40 years after he says this. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what would be Israel's darkest days, the end of the nation. We have to keep that in view because this message is first for Jesus' first century disciples, not for you. In the first place, it's for them, not for you. Now, the significant question is whether Jesus is also talking about the greater judgment day, his second coming, that end of the world, which is one day closer, by the way, today. <clears throat> I believe that's the case in Matthew and Mark's version, that Jesus is speaking about his second coming, as both of them actually include a part of Jesus' sermon that Luke leaves out. If you read it later, go home and check it out. In both of them, Jesus will speak of that day, an hour and a day in the distant future. It's not clear that this is the case in Luke's gospel, minus really a passing remark in that last section, 34 to 36, where Jesus refers to a judgment that is going to come upon the face of the whole earth. Verse 35, right there, you find it there. So, yes, what I am saying is that Luke is not including all that Jesus had to say that day. I hope that doesn't bother you because he doesn't have to. The reason God gave us four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the reason God inspired four men to write about Jesus is because he wanted to give a clear and a fuller picture of who Jesus Christ is to us. Think about a house with four sides. If you stood in the front yard, you could describe that house pretty accurately, right? You could talk about it, and it would be a very accurate picture of the house. But you wouldn't have a very full picture because you don't know what the other sides are like. But if you have four people, one station at each side of the house, they would each provide a different description, and each would be accurate, right? But with those four different descriptions, you would have a fuller, a more accurate picture of this house. That is why God inspired four authors to write about Jesus Christ. Right in the center of your Bible, no other person is written about in four different places like this. Jesus is at the center of the Bible, and God wants you to understand who Jesus is in all his fullness. Jesus is the point of all the scriptures. We're going to find that out in Luke 24. Now, each, since each author is you know, concerned with showing us different portraits of our Lord, this is why Luke doesn't have to include things that Matthew and Mark do. Luke, under inspiration, wanted to show us another facet of our multifaceted Savior, particularly, and we've been talking about this again and again, that he is the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. And Luke is also writing to a different audience as well. Anybody remember who Luke is writing to? Theophilus, an early Greek Christian convert. Right at the beginning of the book, he starts off, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so you may have certainty about the things you've been taught about Christ. And Luke wants Theophilus to read about Jesus' prophecy of the temple and Jerusalem being destroyed in particular. He wants that in Theophilus' focus. I found myself wondering, and this is completely conjecture on my part, what if Theophilus read this gospel? He had Luke write it for him. He paid him to do that. He was an early convert, but then Theophilus drifted away. That happens to a lot of people, right? 
The seed gets planted. You see all this amazing growth. I know folks who get all excited about Jesus. They start going to church. They get baptized. And then a year later, the stuff of this world, the cares of this life begin to creep in. and They choke out the gospel. We're talking about this in the parable of the soils last Thursday night. Is it possible that Theophilus fell away later in his life? What if 40 years later, Theophilus opens his Roman Times 70 AD edition and he sees this headline story. Titus and Roman army sack Jerusalem and completely obliterate temple. Thousands slaughtered. What if those are the headlines Theophilus is reading 40 years later? All those who rejected Jesus, who sent him to the cross, and he remembers this prophecy that Luke gave him. I think Theophilus will realize what we, I hope, are realizing as we read this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will endure forever. They will not pass away. And Theophilus would hopefully believe the good news that he can still be saved. Judgment day has not yet come. This week I saw a man given a second chance at life. He repented of his sins and came to Jesus. The gospel still remains good news for you today if you're a not yet Christian. Jesus is still at work seeking and saving those who are lost. And by the way, Luke does believe in the second coming of Christ, the final judgment day, even if that's not his focus here as I would hold. Now, many pastors, even in my own denomination, will disagree with me, and not knowing the exact answer for sure is okay. Actually, our confession of faith says this in chapter 1, section 7, Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by proper use of the ordinary means. What that means is there are parts in this Bible that are tough to understand, not very clear. Luke 21 is actually one of these. But what is clear to all, whether you have a titanium cranium, you can remember everything, or if you're distracted beyond belief right now and you're just trying to get something, what is clear to all is that the Bible makes very, very crystal clear what you need to be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. There are really two questions that John is posing there. Number one, who is God? Actually, we sang about it earlier from Revelation 4. We read about it. God is almighty. By the way, that was written for your sake, not God's. God already knows he's almighty. The problem is we don't, right? If we did, if we really took in what we were saying earlier and singing, you know, our jaws would drop and our eyes would bug out like a two-year-old who's just gone to the zoo for the first time and seen a massive elephant, right? The Bible is absolutely crystal clear about God's almightiness. It is real about God's almightiness. So is Jesus here in these first verses, 25 and 26. Listen to what God can do. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and its waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven 
will be shaken. How almighty is God? Jesus speaks of all three realms of creation completely at God's control. The heavens, the earth, and the seas. And God's deciding to stir it up right now. And folks are so overwhelmed, they're falling over like bowling pins as they see the judgment coming. Think of all the panic we saw as Hurricane Ian is churning over the waters of the Gulf Coast about to come in. Who is God? (laughs) Almighty and loving. And loving. So love the world. Second question is, how has God loved the world? He sent his only son for you to believe in. And it's the difference between eternal life or perishing. It's your choice. Only, only son, only begotten makes Jesus very unique. The special way that God shows his love to us here in this world, in a perishing world. We, you and I, we are perishing. Why? Because actually read on in John, because we all live in darkness and denial. We all do. We all know that we have done evil things, things that we love to hide and cover up. We have left a trail of people we have hurt in our past. And we try to either take drugs or we do things to try and clear our conscience of it or we just try to forget. It doesn't go away. It's there. We prefer the darkness, not the light. That is what makes God's love so great. It's wicked people in denial. He could just leave us, right? Well, fine. You don't want me? You don't want to serve me? No. It's us who are in denial, who are wicked, that God loves so much. So much that he sent his only son to die a shameful death that we don't want to die. And all we have to do is believe in him. And then our evil is dealt with at the cross of Christ. And we get eternal life instead of perishing simply by believing in Jesus or believing into Jesus as the translation would be better. Believing in Jesus. And let me tell you what that doesn't mean. If I said to you, I believe in clean energy, that means I like it, I approve it, I endorse it. That doesn't work on John 3.16. I cannot say the sacrificial death of the Son of God Almighty is something I believe in, like October baseball, or fireworks, or blueberry pancakes. No. I believe. So I go to church once a week and I wear my Jesus gear. No. It is to make Jesus my everything. My everything. I talk to him. I seek his will. I make it my goal to live with him because, for him because he's done everything for me. He is my real Savior who really forgave my really real sins. And I don't have to hide anymore. All I have to do is hurl myself at him the rest of my life and for all of eternity. I don't have to live selfishly, all about self. It means I'm stuck on me, and all I can think about is what I can get out of things. No. I'm freed to live for him and actually love others because he loved me and gave himself for me. That is the good news, and it's available for everybody, anybody. Simply come. Eternal life is available for whosoever because God so loved the world. That's a real hope. Because one day it is going to get real. Really real. As it was for Jesus' disciples. As they're told of the signs 
that are going to come before Jerusalem and the temple, and much of their nation is completely destroyed. Verse 27, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now Jesus is either speaking of his second coming and instead of fainting, you can straighten up, raise your head because eternal life is now coming earthside. Or as I said last week, the you here is the disciples. And Luke is again using Old Testament language from the prophets, apocalyptic language to describe events that actually happened in Jesus' day or in the disciples' day. The Son of Man coming in the clouds is actually a prophecy from Daniel 7 about Jesus' ascension into heaven. Daniel had a vision from the top side of heaven where he saw the triumphant Christ returning to heaven and the transfer of earthly power to the heavenly Son of Man. And think about it. In less than two months, in Acts chapter 1, Luke's companion volume, the disciples are going to watch the risen Christ taken up into heaven in what? A cloud. And the disciples, they get it, that Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And what do they do? They straighten up. They're empowered by the Spirit. With chins up, they go out and start proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone everywhere as they go out into what they know is going to be a war zone. They're proclaiming that redemption was drawing near. And Jesus goes on in verse 29, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out of leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, it's a really simple parable. Jesus says, look at the trees, see the leaves. You know the season, right? When you see signs, these signs, the wars, the rumors of wars, the Roman army, they're marching your way. You know the kingdom of God is near. That the king is coming at this point to judge those who have rejected his reign. Notice Jesus says, truly. That's kind of his way of underlining what comes next. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I know there are some who say, oh, this is the generation. It's referring to the Jewish nation. Others say, you know, this twisted and crooked generation, just generically all wicked humanity. I don't think that makes the best sense here. How would these disciples understand this? All these things will take place in this generation truly. And Jesus follows that up with an ironclad promise about the surety of his words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is quite a thing for Jesus to say. Jesus is saying that everything in creation is temporary. This building your car outside, your school, this nation, this city, the oceans, the stars, all impermanent, all temporary. But Jesus says, but you can bank on my words being permanent. Every week, I say it after I finish reading our sermon text, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Think of the thousands of Bible skeptics 
who are right now rotting in their graves. And the word of God continues to advance throughout the globe. It's actually what the Reformation was built on. Why men like Luther and Wycliffe, they were willing to die because they wanted to bring back God's perish, his word to a perishing people and they knew that it would not go away, that it would advance. You realize how many people have died so that you and I can have this right here? You ever thought about that? It's worth dying for because it's eternal. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they would face as his witnesses to his word, taking God's word to those who are perishing because God so loved the world. I know this isn't really on our minds much. I'm saying this, and honestly, I've never been threatened to go to jail for preaching the gospel. I don't think any of you have had policemen show up at your house looking to see if you have a Bible there. But friends, you are in no less danger. Listen to what Jesus says next here. Verse 34, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is a fascinating picture as I was thinking about it. Jesus tells his disciples to be watching, to be scanning like soldiers themselves. And what are they to be on the lookout for? Their hearts, not getting weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And dissipation means self-indulgence, excessive, wasteful living. Do you get the picture? Jesus is saying, to his disciples, you basically got a funnel sticking out of your chest. And you need to watch what is being poured into it each and every day. What are you pouring into your heart? Jesus just said his words are eternal. Praise God, they can pour what is eternal into their hearts. But they must be vigilant that they're not pouring the sludge of this world into their hearts. Pouring it in so that then they're weighed down quite the picture, don't you think? I had to ask myself, what am I pouring into my heart day after day? What are you pouring into your heart? I had to repent with Jamie recently for watching a movie that started to go south, so we decided to skip the scene, you know, and then try to watch the rest, and it didn't get any better. We shouldn't have watched it. Friends, we can't get weighed down or Jesus says, we won't be able to move on that day when it snaps like a trap on us. When judgment day comes, Jesus says, those who are weighed down with the things of this life won't escape. And this is not just for first century disciples. Verse 35, for all who dwell on the face of the earth. Beloved, we face at least an equal danger to these first century disciples who are actually going into a war zone. My number one challenge as a pastor is to try and make disciples for Jesus Christ when in fact we're living in the wealthiest nation to ever be on the planet in all of human history. Even the poorest of us have such comforts that first century people, even the poorest of them, couldn't have imagined. We, myself included, are all well-seasoned disciples of consumerism. 
We stare at screens day after day, right, of all the things that you need and you're miserable and you won't be happy if you don't have. I get 35 minutes most weeks. i got to compete with that. We must experience this for our souls to be happy. There's nothing in those about the destination. It's all about the journey. That's the message of today. Live it up now. Enjoy the journey. Don't worry about what is to come. Mick Jagger got us started. Time is on our side. I was reading Anthony Kiddis of Red Hot Chili Peppers this week. Oh, and the eternal youth of Mick Jagger, who, by the way, just had a heart thing where he's... Actually, I look at my old Mick Jagger albums, and I look at him today. Time is not on his side. (laughs) That's what the world wants you to believe. And they just keep telling you it, so you start to... Oh, that's true. Friends, we need to be watchful because we live in a war zone and we have a hidden enemy. There's a story of three junior varsity demons. They were in training and Satan asked them, what strategy would you use if I sent you to earth for one day? And the first demon comes up and he says, I will tell the human being that there's no heaven. And Satan says, no, that won't work. People are hardwired for heaven. This hope makes them immune to that. So the next one comes up, oh, I know, I'll tell them there's no hell. And Satan says, no, God gave every person a conscience and they know judgment is coming for their sins. So the third one scratches his head, thinks it over for a minute. He says, I know, I'll simply whisper in their ears, there's no hurry, you have plenty of time. And the Satan smiles and says, well done. Men are prone to procrastinate. Put off all the important things that matter. The devil loves to keep us thinking we have all the time in the world to delight ourselves with trivial pleasures. Remember Jesus' parable of the man in Luke 12 who had the bumper crop and he decided to tear down the old barns and build bigger barns. Say we have plenty of years to celebrate all his wealth. Do you remember that absolutely insane thing he says? He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you get what he's saying? He's talking to his soul like it's his body. Souls don't eat or drink. Years of food and drink are not going to benefit his eternal soul at all. He sees the trivial things as eternal things, and that's the message being pushed on us in this consumeristic culture. Daryl Box says, well, seekers of wealth ends up with an empty soul and an empty life. Possessions are like light beer. They may taste great, but they're really less filling. And some of us won't get that. That's a later generation commercial. Less filling, even as they weigh us down, though, as Jesus says. Which is why Jesus gives us this call to watchfulness. J.C. Ryle says, We are to live on guard like men in an enemy's country. We are to remember that evil is about us and near us and in us And that we have to contend daily with a treacherous heart in an ensnaring world and a busy devil. Remembering this, we must put on the whole armor of God and beware of spiritual drowsiness. If any of you are sleeping right now, please wake up. Please wake up. Jesus encourages us here right at the end to stay awake, praying at all times for God's strength, so that we will be able to stand before the Son of Man on that last day. 
And by the way, Jesus is saying this to disciples who in a day or two, on the night of their master's greatest anguish, will fall asleep right after Jesus tells them to pray not to enter into temptation. We're just as prone as them. But then look what happens in Acts 1. Now that they get it, and they start to come together to pray together, this little group of disciples begins to do what Jesus says. They're watching and praying and read through Acts, and they change human history, this little group of men, because they're watchful and they're praying. Here's what I want us to do. I'm going to put a challenge before us today. I want you to look around the church right now. Just look around. Look around. Look at a neighbor who's here. Maybe look at a neighbor who's not here, who has been here. Just like these disciples who literally walk with Jesus for three years, there's not a single one of us here who has the strength needed for the war that we're in. And we're all in a war. I came to realize that very quickly after planting Heart City Church. God did something very, very special for me. He gave me a band of brothers. I was watching The Hobbit last night, and so it's kind of, it was kind of like a Fellowship of the Rings that he gave me. Some of you have seen that movie trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, right? Every Monday and Friday morning, about three or four months into planting Heart City Church, a band of brothers began to go with me to Rivendell so that we could be refreshed and we could pray to God for strength for ourselves and for you guys. Yeah, I got a Legolas, I got a Boromir, a Gimli, and I got a Samwise. And I'll leave you to guess who those people are. Sam's kind of smiling at me right now. And we come together to pray for you and for one another. And I'm so thankful because I leave that meeting always more aware of the war that we're in, the war zone we're in. And there are times in prayer or as we're talking that I suddenly realize a sin pattern or somewhere where I was starting to go off. Things in this world try to weigh me down, and I would not be standing here today if it wasn't for my band of brothers. So here's my challenge to you. I want you to look around, and somebody who you saw comes to mind. I want you to ask yourself, who should I be praying for, for God's strength in their life? Who isn't here that I should be praying for right now? Who might I reach out to this week? How can I ask them what's going on in their lives, what I can be praying for? How can I make Jesus large in their life? Maybe God's given me a verse. Friends, we're in a war zone, and we all need a way of escape, and we all need God's strength. Children, you too can think about someone you can pray for this week. Or maybe you can ask one of the adults, will you pray for me? Think about someone you can pray for. And I promise you, I guarantee you, you will not regret one moment. On that last day, you will not regret one moment you spent praying for someone here in our midst, making Jesus large to them. This time is so short. That's the challenge I leave for you to pray for a dear soul who's here. (sighs) Friends, we're all in the field of battle. But here's the thing. Victory is sure. If we're willing to be watchful and willing to pray for one another. I'll end with a scene from Henry V. 
there's this battle scene that takes place on the Feast of Crispian. And the English troops are vastly outnumbered by the French that they see there. And someone begins speaking about how they wish they had more men to fight. And the king steps out and he interrupts them and he gives them this great speech. I'll only read just a little bit. He says, From this day to the ending of the world, what we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. That's a good picture of what our big brother, our King Jesus, is saying today to prepare us, the one who shed his blood for us. He's preparing us by being real about the battle we face, the war zone we're in. He's preparing us by saying we need to be praying with and for one another for God's strength. And then he holds up a great hope before us that though we are outnumbered in this world, we, like the 12 disciples, we have just enough people to make history. How do we want our stories to end? We have a wonderful opportunity, friends. May you and I and the many people that God places on our hearts find ourselves standing on that last day of human history. And we're going to hear these wonderful words from our big brother, our Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks for these words that you inspired Luke to write. Uh, you meant them for Theophilus, but we also know you meant for them to be read here in a former bank building on the other side of the world in Elkhart, Indiana, for everyone you brought here. I pray we may take these words to heart. I pray, Lord, that we might see the reality of the battle we face. I pray, Lord, for strength. Give us strength in the battle that we can stand firm to the end. And I pray, Lord, that we will constantly keep our eyes fixed on our Lord Jesus. And for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, is now seated at your right hand, urging us on to the end. We pray this in his name. Amen.